Hello, and welcome to one of the genchiest episodes of Chatting Tonight. Now listen up, cats. I don't want you to go through life as a square, so I've got a bitchin' story for you that's not only radioactive, but it's also a real big tickle. So let's go back in time and take a look at the little black book. I think this episode is gonna go over like gangbusters. It'll razz your berries. And if you don't like it, well, ain't that just a bite? A woman is never more sincere than when she says, I love you, to a millionaire. But where does that leave the other 99.99% of bachelordom? When you have plans, blonde plans, let's say, it may seem tragic to have to fall back on your own ingenuity instead of a 90-foot yacht. But for you and all other footloose males, help is at hand. These pages are a roadmap to success with the other sex. Follow the markers. Heed the warnings. Learn all the fascinating signs that mean stop or go. Memorize the lines that lead to soft shoulders and never for one minute take your eyes off the curves. By following the directions with care, you'll arrive happily at your destination. For all return trips, you're on your own. Welcome to the Little Black Book by Cadwallader and Nudnik from 1957. This book is addressed to men, which should assure it of a high readership among that other sex. We have felt that a manual such as we present has been long overdue. Politics had its Machiavelli, who was willing to speak a few plain truths. But where among books is there a guide for bachelors? You hold the answer in your hand. The reader may think it is presumptuous of anyone to write such a book, but he does not know C and N. Ours is not a kiss-and-tell record of accomplishment, but is written from the deep knowledge that comes only with failure. Not our own, of course, but as a result of research and inquiry. From locker rooms and bars, from smokers and lavatories, we have enlisted the best bachelor brains of our acquaintance, and through keyhole and transom, we have gleaned the heretofore unwritten truths that abound in this slender volume, not only for your edification, reader dear, but for our own. Women have had a franchise on romance since the Garden of Eden. They are the haves, and you boys, the have-nots. They bargain from strength. You may preen yourself on having the bat and ball, but they own the playground. And so hapless males ever since have had their eyes glued to the knot holes, tried to scale the fence and crash the gate, anything to avoid the prosaic turnstile of marriage. Our book shall be concerned with the contest itself and not the awarding of trophies. Chapter one, about these girls now. Some philosopher once said that the proper study of mankind is man. Any modern bachelor knows better than that, so about these girls now. 
If the word study in the opener should give you to think that we are going to be stuffy and pedantic about our subject, you're in for a disappointment. When we first decided to betray womankind by writing this book, there were three of us. Now we are but two, C and N. And at this point, I should add the editor's note. For reasons of convenience throughout this book, your writers shall refer to themselves as CNN. We found that in undertaking research for this manual that we of necessity became privy to the personal affairs of many interesting characters, male and female. Showing a disposition to listen patiently to this kind of talk, we soon acquired that affection and confidence that is loosely bestowed on good listeners. It was not long before we were sought out by many romantic malcontents who wished to obtain help. So began our advice to the love-shorn bachelor. At first, we had no notion of profiting from these interviews, but as our fame increased, our time diminished until, alas, we were forced to establish the C&N clinic and charge a nominal fee for consultations. It is well known that few people ever heed free advice. So having the true interest of our patients at heart, we reluctantly let them pick up the tab. We have drawn freely on our case history files because we feel that the use of this material, intimate by its very nature, serves to enliven the text. Now, X is no longer with us. Unlike ourselves, X was more interested in the true nature of woman than in her habits, seasons, and general behavior. Instead of asking where, he began by asking what is a woman, and there he left us. We understood he ended up in a Trappist monastery. He must have found out what he wanted to know. Happily bereft of X's ridiculous viewpoints, we have proceeded in our own way. We have learned that woman should not be scrutinized, but regarded superficially, so as to perceive her best qualities, realizing that it is ignorance, not knowledge, which preserves illusion and generates enthusiasm. We shall hew to this line. Before getting lost in a discussion of particular types of girls, we would like to examine woman the concept. That woman is a concept as well as an actuality is evident in the names we bestow on things. The, big the bigger these things are, the more certain they are to be designated as feminine. Mother Earth, for example. Since man is usually the giver of names, it may be because he considers ships, automobiles, and machines in general beautiful and expensive that he regards these as feminine. Show him an engraving of La Bonhomme Richard, and he will say, she sure was a beauty. Even if he cites a whale, sex unknown, he unhesitatingly cries down from the rigging, thar she blows. If the weather should be unduly warm, the day itself acquires sex as the filling station attendant confides that she's a hot one today. Exceptions have been attempted. Ask a man to enlist to serve Der Vaterland and he winds up fighting for his mother country. It is now clear, boy, that no matter where you may be or what you may be doing, you're always thinking about women. In other words, a man has sex on his mind and a woman has it on her hand. As your brokers, in a manner of speaking, we feel that you two should get together after a final admonishment or so. At times, throughout these pages, we may make an appeal to the bachelor reader's better self. We do not direct this appeal to anything so flimsy as his sense of morals, but namely to his sportsmanship. Few men would be offended if 
they were termed wicked, but call one of them a bad sport, and you have hit him where he lives. Again and again, we shall say, play the game. Men versus women. No woman is an amateur, if by amateur one would imply lack of knowledge or skill. All women are born with a veritable constellation of instincts that aids them without thinking. For this reason, they are always ahead of you. But don't assume, because you can't understand them, that they are complex. Men fail to understand women precisely because they are more simple than men. In assuming that her pattern of thought is an intricate web, a man goes off on a tangent to become lost in the mystery of space while she blithely follows a clear straight line. Let perish the thought that she is romantic by nature. This is another error that she would encourage. The best argument we can advance that it is not women but men who are truly romantic is the fact that, for centuries, men have created all the music, painting, and poetry of any consequence. Unless you would bracket Carrie Jacobs Bond with Beethoven, Rosa Bonheur with Michelangelo, don't bother to try to refute this. We admit Elizabeth Barrett Browning embarrasses our argument, but remember, she was a sick girl. From the foregoing, you might assume that women have no inner life. We do not wish to go so far as that. The question of whether or not women have souls used to be a popular topic with medieval philosophers, but CNN are willing to concede here. We, for one, are practically convinced they do have souls. But let us contemplate the difference between men and women in more intimate detail. One of the prime differences between man and woman is that man has habits and woman has rituals. Contrast your own quick shower, once over with a razor, clean shirt, and the rubbing of the calf with each shoe with her ritualistic behavior as she moves in kind of a trance. She is like an alchemist preparing to transmute base metal into shining gold. Around her are hot irons and ominous wind machines, as well as countless substances, chemicals, greases, creams, jellies, liquids, powders, and colored paste, all goops which have acquired their potency through repeated incantations said over them by voices on the radio, television, and across counters. That the labels themselves have mystic powers is a possibility. After her bath, which makes a scrubbing surgeon look like a small boy anxious to get back to a game of shinny, she emerges and begins. Enough sprays and powders fill the air to produce a prancing white horse on the Orpheum stage, but she has a larger purpose in view. Apart from all the ingredients mentioned above, the main thing consumed is time. After an hour or so of strange grimaces followed by wand-like passes in the air above her head with a comb, the first act is concluded and she is ready to dress, which is all she said she was doing in the first place. Now she ponders closets and shoe racks while she mutters in some cabalistic way. Finally, the donning of Raymond begins. With serpentine movements, squirming, straining, and tugging, she puts on a girdle. Next, the stockings and high heels. A glimpse at this moment would convince the male onlooker that this batch, too, is going to turn out all right. Then, slipping into her dress, she does a kind of minuet. 
school of Martha Graham with her alter ego, the mirror. If she gets an improving nod from that carping partner in the glass, the dance is over and she presents herself. The mystery and the miracle are impressive. Beginning with just an ordinary human being, she has, before our very eyes, created woman. Strangely enough, the highest accolade which can now be given her is for a man to snort, paw the Axminster, and say that he now has an uncontrollable urge to undo the glorious result. She receives this tribute irritably if the man chances to be her husband and, replier, and replies in accordance with the ancient tradition, Not now, dear. Only strangers and bachelors may have this privilege. She will punish her husband for having married her by insidiously undoing the previous miracle later that night and presenting him with but a fraction of it, the lowest common denominator, herself, thereby preserving the mystery of that woman that she keeps in bottles and closets. Of course, some husbands don't care, feeling that the undressing one owns wife is like taking down the Christmas tree, a sad business. The goings-on just depicted could apply to any average pretty girl making her toilette. When a woman reaches stature as an individual, acquires glamour and renown, the effect of the miracle is compounded and the wonder amplified as presses roar and people genuflect in the streets. Reams of chiffon, old lace, and newsprint are required to attire her in a manner appropriate to her magnitude. The pyramids could have been boxed up and sent to the Iowa State Fair with less ceremony and received less attention than the recent cumbersome job of transforming one slender American blonde to Monaco. Now, who is the object of all this hullabaloo and pother that women go through? The answer is you, bachelor chum, and lands a Goshen. While time is with you, take every advantage. Insist on the whole enchilada. Don't question the miracle or accept less than the entire package because, after all, divest woman of all her trappings and what have you got? Yipes! Sensational! Curtain going up. First, dismiss the notion that all women are alike, even with the lights out. We shall examine this fallacy on the level of the individual. Rarely do you come upon a true strain or textbook picture like the following type, so please regard these classifications as merely a hopeful index. In utilizing this material, you must practice rule of thumb because the possible combinations are infinite. But now, lights, overture, here they are, the little darlings. As a matter of form, we will follow the order of seniority. So first, we give you that most ancient of her kind, the pro. As bachelors, we feel this lady has her place in the world, but it is not our world. Pursuit and conquest, that is the thrill of the chase, have no meaning for her sort. Any man who patronizes her is on par with the unlucky angler who buys his fish at the market after disappointment in deeper waters. We acknowledge a certain sneaking admiration for her forthrightness in hawking her wares as she does, thereby making all other women seem coy. Intellectual girl. Unless you happen to be a big brain yourself, you should make no effort to meet Athena on her level. 
If she has been around a little while, she probably learned to conceal her high forehead from the Cretans she has been dating. Any woman is less vain about her brain than her figure, even if she is a PhD. So praise her curves and build her up till she feels like Marilyn Monroe. Ignore her diploma and treat her like a sweater girl. And I should note that a sweater girl is a cashmere-bearing mammal with a high threshold of pleasure. Or she may become your Phi Beta Noir. Having canvassed hundreds of girls, we found that females in college indulge in intimate heterosexual relationship far more frequently than those in grade school. Hence, the inescapable conclusion that higher education is detrimental to conventional moral standards. We believe that CNN are the first to note this corollary. Lush. We shall dispense with her quickly. The Lush doesn't mind if she does, but presents the problem of making a hollandaise sauce. In other words, getting her to the right point before she curdles. If John Barleycorn beats your time, accept it. Play the game and never shoot a sitting duck. Athletic type. Many girls affect an interest in athletics in order to increase their scope and extend it to the daytime hours, or because they feel they look well in shorts or bathing suits. However, should you find yourself beeswhacked with one of these virigos, you may be in for an exhausting time of it. If her interest in sports extends to the boudoir, she may continue your humiliation there as well as beating you five sets in the hot sun. Check in with your doctor before seriously pursuing one of these Dianas. Maybe what you really need is a hot water bottle in bed. Flirt. A flirt is any girl who is reasonably courteous to another man in your presence. All girls are flirts and be grateful for that or she might not have spoken to you in the first place. However, if she confines her activities to coquetry alone, then this means trouble and brings us to the attractive nuisance who conducts a one-woman war against men, possibly due to some slight, real or imaginary, occurring sometime between the playpen and nursery school. She has dedicated herself to your frustration, for she is the tease, a direct lineal descendant of the siren. So plug your ears and stay off the reefs. No two ways about it. This personable wench should really be fenced and posted for all to heed. It is hard to resist the challenge she offers, but you will finally learn the secret of her fascination is that she is as insincere as you are. Dirty pool. Like the one that got away, you will remember her when the others are forgotten. For those who value the game as much as the reward, CNN say, try your luck, but don't say we didn't warn you. Should you, by any gaudy chance, succeed, get in touch. We would like to spend an afternoon tying flies with you. Career girl. A career girl is a problem to you and herself. She is the donkey between two stacks of hay. In addition to the usual routine of courting, your conversation must be liberally larded with promises of opportunities relevant to her ambitions. You must either have connections or be a liar to appeal to her. To long maintain such a liaison, some concrete results must be forthcoming or she's off like a bird. Most of the younger career girls have a wholesome attitude towards marriage. 
they are just not interested. Rarely is a girl in this category interested in you as a person. However, there is always one subject of keen mutual interest which will command her fascinated attention, namely herself. So, like a good golfer, keep your head down, eye on the ball, and follow through. The career girl who has definitely arrived may feel she can consider a man for himself. He can do her no favors, but she may grant him hers. She is no longer as selfish as she was because she now has everything except you, you lucky dog. She will love you with the full intensity of half her whole being for all eternity. That is to say, for six months or as long as you can bear it. Jailbait. One forgets that the symbol of the romantic female, Juliet, no less, was really jailbait, being a scant 14 at the time she and Romeo were an item. This fresh stuff is for those who would sacrifice a bit of seasoning for the tenderness of the morsel itself. She is the peculiar prey of the fatherly type who, in his kindly desire to educate her, proceeds to subject her to the very things he would caution her against. We say, be patient, kill time rather than do time. Soon she will be a mature woman of 18. Gold Digger. This one knows the price of everything and the value of nothing being done without payment in advance. A bachelor of average means confronted by this sort finds himself in a stalemate situation. Each has what the other wants. Simple barter is in order here, but against your short funds, she has unlimited natural resources. You may try a marginal operation for a time here, but she will sell you short the first time you fail to cover. Unlike the pro, this prospector does not make the mistake of operating on too small a scale, and so escapes the stigma of the other accepts and endures. The GD regards love as big business, and she knows her business. She can tell whether you are paced or real at 20 paces, and measures the BTUs and the warmth of her greeting at so much per carat. The purest example of her ilk to come to our attention is a jewel-encrusted dame we know who celebrates New Year's Eve on June 30th, the end of the fiscal year. One of the boys. Some girls are just what the caption indicates, while other misguided ones aspire to this category and are chagrined when accepted on this basis. A passion for eavesdropping on men talk sometimes spurs the very young to achieve this dubious position. A desire to be consistent makes them easy marks like the stool pigeons they are. A truly smart feminine dish never seeks to diminish the advantage of being different from the boys. Nympho. The nymphomaniac can best be defined as someone who likes something at least as well as you do. The problem here is one of recognition. This may take time, say 45 minutes, but from then on it is the old question of fighting a wildcat, how to let go and keep face. In the case of this hammered ad, a subtle approach is about as necessary as using a beagle hound in a shooting gallery. She'll ask you, and here your eye will be bigger than your stomach for this task. You'll find it rather like trying to keep a 90-pound tuna in the bottom of the boat. Girlfriend, this individual is not a true type. 
she has no identity of her own. In the theater of romance, she is a faceless spear carrier. She is parasitically attached to any one of the other archtibits listed here. Sometimes, generally late at night, after the administering of sufficient alcohol, she begins to materialize and may even seem desirable. But in the morning, this illusion dissolves. The girlfriend is an impediment to progress, a kind of modern duenna. The most attractive thing about her is her prettier companion, whom you have as little a chance of seeing alone as you have of seeing Pagalacci without Cavallaria Rusticonica. Oddly enough, her charm and appeal may be evident to other men, but never to you and she has a most annoying habit of intermittently bestowing herself upon the unlucky as a consolation prize. The Lady The term persists in a form of address, ladies and gentlemen, as a plural of which the singular is unknown as in news. And who is responsible? Why, the lady herself. She was last seen some years ago, jumping into men's trousers, grabbing a lunchbox, and rushing for the streetcar with a career glint in her eye, and hasn't been heard from since. Naturally, when the female of a species ceases to exist, her male counterpart, the gentleman, of necessity disappears, having no longer anyone to whom he may address himself. We regret there is no lady in this book of virgins. In deference to the superstitious among our readers, we will treat of virgins of whom we, of whom so much has been written in legend and mythology. We speak of full-grown virgins. Mind you, we do not deny categorically that such creatures exist. Rumors reach our desk constantly. Only recently, one was reported near Chicago, but by an unreliable observer. Virginity is a condition found in the very young, not unlike the soft spot on the head of a baby. It is really nothing to worry about, for it usually goes away by itself before the child is very old. If it lingers, virginity proves embarrassing to its possessor as well as her family and friends. Like a lisp, it's cute up to a point. Identification is difficult. A vine-ripened beauty is reluctant to admit she is one, but is indignant if you assume she isn't. She doesn't know whether to feel proud or unwanted. It's all very confusing. You might as well follow the advice in jailbait, and when you bring them up to the boat and find they're below the legal limit, toss them back like the veteran angler. Chapter 2. How to Meet Girls Statisticians maintain that for every man represented by 1.00 in the U.S., there are 1.03 women. This .03 bit of lagnapy is not to be sneered at. It totes up to a margin of some 2 million or so, forming a pool of romantically unemployed females that is almost enough to make us understaffed bachelors quail at the prospect and the prospect of quail is no light matter. 
In face of this veritable horde of spare parts, the problem of meeting girls should be easy. And so it is. But one thing to keep in mind is that our standards of etiquette date back to a time when women were more scarce in our frontier nation, and tradition still dictates the necessity of a proper introduction, lacking, as it may, the formality required in Grandma's day. The most notable forward step taken since then is that now the background, character, and reputation of the introducer is of no importance whatsoever. Today, anyone with no more credentials than a felon on parole, your bookie for instance, can perform this office by simply saying, Brunhilde, meet my buddy Siegfried, and a light kindles in her eyes and the fat is on the fire. Or, alternately, Pocahontas, drop that load of kindling and meet Captain Smith. Another marked advance in social protocol is that the character of the man being introduced is no longer even relevant. Every American girl has heard the phrase, don't speak to strange men, dinned into her ears so often since she was a child that even the loneliness, love-starved chick is apt to turn on her heel when approached by a stranger. It's not that she questions the moral rectitude of the man, but simply that she does not know his name. Now, if only some third party steps up and says, Emily, this is Jack Ripper. She becomes all smiles and her foolish juvenile fears vanish. The time and place of the initial meeting is still as important as ever, but not because of social convention. Ideally, it should occur when and where you have the circumstances under your control so that you can follow up any advantage that may occur. Granted, this is not always possible, but if you get off your Francis and get around a bit, you'll be surprised at the number of women moving freely about unmolested. And here is where you come in. Women are often found to be in the most prosaic places, supermarkets, department stores, pharmacies, etc. How does one grasp opportunity without risking rebuff or worse? Using the supermarket, for example, a trespasser like yourself might do this. Having spotted some desirable winch in the fruit and vegetable section, start feeling a honeydew melon in a tentative manner. Then, as if talking to yourself, ask, how can you tell when these are ripe? And, with a helpless look, catch her eye. In matters domestic, women delight in showing superiority, so in this case, she will confidently take the melon, pressing the ends firmly with her thumbs, while you double-check her fingers for a wedding ring. Thank her warmly. Continue the conversation casually at the meat counter as she helps you select the best cuts. Naturally, you will carry her groceries to the car. If she drives off without giving you her phone number, you still have her name and address, which you surely caged off her registration slip on the steering column. Now, don't waste all your afternoons hanging around markets selling fruit just because it worked so well that time. There are still such obvious catch-alls as bars and restaurants where, if you need our help, you're hopeless. Airlines and trains are a little more of a challenge, but only for the novice. However, 
Save yourself the bother of courting the smiling airline hostess who is secretly married to the pilot anyway. Should you find yourself alone in a strange town of decent size, you can visit certain establishments where the girl, because of the nature of her employment, speaks to you first. Sales girls in general, and rumba instructors in particular. Chances are good here, but even more so if you can affect a Texas draw as slick as an oil well. What might offend in a matter-of-fact northern twang comes out as a compliment in a lazy southern accent. The offbeat aura of the art museum provides a romantic setting for the beginning of a beautiful friendship. An artist we know, who spends most of his time vainly searching for some girl named Jenny, admitted he found consolation by using the ensuing bilk. Breathing quietly, stand directly behind some delightful creature as she gauges at a large pitcher. When she steps back for a better view and bumps into you, steady her as you apologize, inquire if she is all right, not feeling faint perhaps, and offer to fetch her a drink of water. When she says no, suggest a martini possibly. If she smiles ever so little, make a sweeping gesture at the splendor of the walls laden with those El Grecos and Goyas and say, come, let me take you away from all this. And she just might. Lonely hearts clubs are taboo. If you are despondent enough to go to one of these white elephant dansants, you'll probably wind up with some misfit no better than yourself. And surely you wouldn't like that. We didn't. The cocktail party. Cocktail parties clearly afford the best opportunity to get acquainted with new girls. So let's have a party. You both look your best. Introductions are routine as she is constrained by ordinary courtesy to be pleasant. Not only has liquor lubricated your tongues and greased the skids under the inhibitions, but the greater part of the evening is still before you. If she is unescorted, the idea is to sneak up from downwind and scoop her off for dinner. True, you may fail to capture the body, but an introduction, although somewhat short of a writ of habeas corpus, does give you the opening for snaggling that sufficient minimum her phone number. In order to obtain these useful little digits, you must avoid being too sly or devious because girls arch their backs at transparent and petty deceits. Don't take the long way around the barn. Come right out and ask her politely, may I call you sometime? Never ask, what is your phone number, before obtaining the answer to the previous request. Such procedure may provoke a quick comeuppance. Another virtue of the more genteel approach is that if she grants your wish by giving you her correct number, she has indicated her interest, which gives you a leg up in a manner of speaking. Naturally, you will give her a buzz as soon as possible because there were other attractive men with similar ideas at that party. She will have had ample time to have forgotten you if many days elapse. There is nothing so embarrassing as, a, as hearing a chilly who after you have called and given your name. Explanations as to one's identity are always lame and feeble, and she has you one down at the very outset. 
To avoid this mishap, you could have used the CNN memorable remark that is the use of some outlandish, flattering, or absurd statement which must stick in her mind and give you a favorable tailwind. Almost immediately after being presented to this average pretty girl, you might have said any one of these ear catchers. Have you ever shot the Colorado Rapids in a soya bean canoe? I certainly want to wish you a lot of luck tomorrow night. When she expresses surprise by saying she's not doing anything tomorrow night, it's your cue to suggest dinner. Let's just keep it a quiet affair, only the immediate family. The impudence of the above may make her laugh. This is important. Who wants to go all through life one evening with a girl without a sense of humor? Sharing laughter with her creates a feeling of intimacy equaled only by a kiss and even makes that easier. If one of our foregoing catamajammers coupled with a charm of your own person does not make an indelible impression on her, then our names are not Catawaller and Nudnik. Chapter 3. The Telephone We feel that the telephone deserves special attention in itself. It is not called a cradle phone for nothing. It can get you in a whole lot of trouble. This black tyrant is, at one and the same time, an instrument for pursuit and escape. It infinitely extends the field of operations, and, in the conflict of the sexes, communications is as important as logistics. It is as indispensable to a bachelor as his automobile. Just as everyone is not a good driver, neither is he necessarily adept in the use of Alex G. Bell's device. In the interest of clarity and brevity, we enumerate the following points to keep in mind. 1. Have an exchange service. This will help to keep the date book full and give you the option of rejecting or deferring unwanted calls. Number 2. Keep pencil, pad, cigarettes, ashtray, and calendar handy. Make notes and so avoid confusion. Number three, establish the fact, true or not, that you have a party line. This will account for busy signals on your line when you are playing possum. Number four, speak low. Develop a soft, well-modulated voice with intimate overtones. This can engender a favorable or receptive frame of mind in the female listener. Number five, artful dodges for terminating or avoiding conversation. A. Have buzzer at hand that sounds like your doorbell. B. Click telephone yourself and say that the operator must be trying to get through with an urgent call. C. Say you are expecting a long-distance call. D. Suggest phone is tapped. This is particularly effective in discouraging the married girls. E. Keep pets real or imaginary. To say, pardon me, dear, but my hound just ran through the room with the parrot in its mouth usually suffices for an excuse to hang up. F. Answer in your best Japanese houseboy dialect. Even if you are found out, she may still think you are a card. And G. Use the old standby if asking eagerly, where are you, dear? I'll call you right back. Don't become a creature of habit and constantly employ only one or two of the above ruses. Mix them up to avoid monotony and detection. The telephone can be used either to make or receive calls. This is obvious, but we remind you of this simple fact because in placing calls yourself, you control the situation. 
while in receiving them, you might be at a disadvantage. When you make the call, you can compose yourself, order your thoughts, consider your dialogue, and most important, choose your time. When you think of the opportune, even embarrassing moments when the jangling bell can summon you unprepared, the clear advantage of retaining the initiative should be apparent. There is no way to forestall all unforeseen calls, but frequently by previous arrangement, you can know when to expect certain ones. When you are taken unawares, you may, in panic, resort to the truth, being at a loss for words, and find yourself accepting a date that otherwise would be charmingly deferred. The telephone can intrude not only on situations, but on your mood. Some of us are bright in the morning hours, while others need a rolling start. These latter enders might as well leave the phone off the hook until noon. Lee B., bachelor come loud, observes strict protocol in his use of the instrument. Before placing any calls to the opposite sex, he is careful to be smooth-shaven, faultlessly garbed, whether in sack suit or dressing gown, and even his shoes must be shined. Obviously, his appearance and attire is not visible to the lady in question, but he is convinced that a certain confidence and assurance which he feels is communicated to his listener. So sensitive is he to the effect of clothing and accessories that an ascot tie can aspire a brilliant series of epigrams which would be unthinkable in bags and sneakers. If a call is particularly important to him and the impression to be made vital to his interest, Lee will dress for the call as he would if the recipient were present. He is particularly fastidious when talking to maitre d's of certain well-known establishments Realizing that these gentlemen are the greatest of snobs, he is admitted to trying and retrying a Windsor knot four times until the fowler dimpled in just the right manner. Then, and only then, did he feel he could have the proper jaunty tone in his voice to commandeer a choice table. You, reader dear, may be sickened by such sibitarical perfectionism as represented by Lee B., but psychologists will confirm that the underlying principle is sound. If you don't believe it, just call Little Miss Number One in your stable before you have brushed your teeth and while you are wearing only the tops of your pajamas and see if the old bandage is not a bit lame. Little Black Book A telephone can be quite useless unless the bachelor has a little black book in his possession at all times. We feel that its use is imperative. If you can remember a girl's number, it is an indication that you are seeing too much of her. The book will constantly surprise you with alternatives that you might otherwise forget. The rudimentary kind of LBB that a tenderfoot bachelor keeps merely contains names, addresses, and phone numbers. Acknowledging this to be the most vital information, we can hardly regard it as complete. For any worthwhile chick, at least a page should be reserved with these suggested headings. And not to fear, gentlemen, I will snap a pic of this and post it to my Twitter at Betty Davis Thighs, T H I Z Z or my Instagram at Margot Chatting. So you too can update your little black book. 
it is not impractical or wise to carry a volume of the dimensions necessary to record as much information as we have suggested. We advise that there be a master black book kept in some safe place and a plebeian wand for the pocket containing simply names and numbers for emergencies. We do not pretend that the form we have submitted is exhaustive. The resourceful bachelor will no doubt find numerous omissions which he can remedy. Our own personal form is far more intricate, but still cannot compete with one we know, which makes us feel truly humble. One David M., prior to his recent marriage, used to maintain a filing system so complete as to be the wonder and envy of the few intimates who knew of its existence. He dubbed it the Perry Mutual Interest Calculator, or PIC. He had been pursuing an entirely new field of cybernetics, a combining of his data with an electronic setup that not only computed sure things, but dealt in an exhilarating manner with probabilities. Fed the proper and relevant material, of course. We would expect few dossiers to be as elaborate as those of Mr. M, but certain significant information about the fillies that one dates can be helpful. And when we think of the possibilities of pooling these facts, well, sir, but to return to our boy, his modest operandi was delightfully simple. At the first sign of the sniffles or some minor affliction, he would, with tender concern, dispatch his current cutie to his doctor, who would take an exhaustive case history and give her a thorough physical examination. Since the doctor in question was a charlatan, as well as a member of his golf club, the above findings were available to him. With this as a beginning, he carried on until the complete file was a model of comprehensive Pickerington research. Glamorous neglect. Strategic use of the phone when a girl is hot for you can give her the illusion of being courted and getting attention without much wear and tear on the old retreads and bank account. With the help of an understanding sister or gal pal who can be schooled in the ways of a long distance operator, you can give the impression of being a glamorous and well-traveled fellow by using the CNN long distance gamut. The best exponent of this method is Ellsworth P. It was our pleasure to see Ellsworth in actual operation. He had heard, we had heard of his early success at simulating Paris, London, Madrid, and other capitals of the world. His young sister, indispensable ally, who served as operator, was now boning up on various patois and dialects and was warming to the task herself. She was eager to try Novograd USSR, but Ellsworth Republican leanings forbade this. They finally compromised on Nairobi in spite of his dislike of intense heat. On the evening of which we speak, however, Ellsworth presented truly a magnum opus, a ship-to-shore conversation from the Coriana on the high seas. Ellsworth, although he had never been farther east than Blythe, California, eschewed the larger vessels like a seasoned traveler. For this particular conversation, he had presumed on a Hollywood bit player of Cockney parts who owed him $5 to handle the preliminaries. The sound effects were masterly, a continually flushing toilet, a record faintly playing nearer my God to thee, 
which we thought a trifle morbid, though effective. And some kind of ship's bell, which some unknown person sounded in the kitchen at intervals. The rotary motion Ellsworth used on the phone itself, moving at first near and then far from his mouth to imitate the rise and fall of volume on connections such as these, was a thing of beauty. But best of all was the genuine disbelief he showed at actually being able to hear the girl's voice on the other end. The eagerness and feeling he put into, Can you hear me, darling? was unforgettable. We later admitted to each other that even standing right there, we felt a wee bit seasick. The fact that the next day the local newspapers carried an item that the Coriana had been tied up by a longshoresman strike in no way diminished the artistic merit of his great performance. For those who are stirred by Elworth's example, we say, begin modestly, be accurate about details, subscribe to the National Geographic, and haunt the travel bureaus. We must warn that the girl may take advantage of your absence to cut a few capers of her own. Chapter 4. The Automobile A bachelor's automobile is more than a mere conveyance. It is a way of life. Today, more men own cars than own homes, so now it may be properly said that a man's car is his castle. Granted, that a Rolls-Royce is exceeded only in most girls' estimations by a brink truck, there are other respectable alternatives from which to choose. If you can't pop for a Continental or a Cadillac, it is sometimes smart not to drop down just a notch or two in horsepower, but to go all the way to that snappy, modest-priced car that can be called cute and has the aura of a second car. Only if you are a man of celebrated wealth can you afford to drive a seedy businessman's coupe or what appears to be a company car. Apart from your person, the impression that your car makes is one of the first things by which you will be judged. Be as tidy about your car as you are about yourself. Just as you would keep your nails clean, see that the windshield is clear at all times. White wall tires, a must are like letting a judicious amount of shirt cuff show at your coat sleeves. The younger girls are easily dazzled by the flashy convertible with extras, Bermuda carriage bells, twin pipes, etc. A radio we regard as necessary as a carburetor. The slightly older girls, and that's old enough, have had their hairdos blasted to fright wakes often enough to prefer comfort to being conspicuous. So if you drive a convertible, Keep the top and the payments up. Willis C. is a great believer in the importance of the automobile in wooing. One day, he called our attention to the fact that statistics prove that more proposals are made in the darkened interior of this portable vestibule with its remarkable acoustics than in any other one place. These need not be proposals of marriage, he hastened to remind us. Taken with his arguments, as well as his old Jack Daniels, we pressed him to go on what we might glean a few interesting ideas, which forth came. The glove compartment, felt Willis, should not be a repository containing such necessities as old traffic violation receipts, losers' tickets from Santa Anita, a sour half-eaten Hershey bar, a discarded windshield wiper, and a pair of greasy pliers the standard equipment carried by the average provident mail driver, 
but should show from its contents some foresight and imagination. He went on to say that there are certain little niceties that please women, and without going so far as to make it a complete notion counter, the handy cubicle might contain the following articles. Cold cream, Kleenex, chewing gum, mascara, band-aids, a rat tail comb, bobby and safety pins, a shoehorn, emery boards, and a Phillips screwdriver. A vanity mirror on the sun visor, he confided, is mandatory. As an encore thrown in with the above advice, Willis volunteered what he calls the care-to-drive operation. If one is satisfied that the girl can handle the car properly, then suggest that she take the wheel. He found that most young girls enjoyed the vote of confidence and frequently took him up on it. He said that he never felt so devil-may-care as when he lounged in the luxury of seeing an eager young thing playing chauffeur to him. Quite different from the helpless subordinate feeling of being a passenger in her car. And, note this, since no one likes to drive aimlessly for very long, he would suggest, after a short while, that they stop at his apartment for a drink. This always worked. Since she was driving, she felt more like a creature of free will and less like a lamb being led, as she pulled up at his place, relaxed and open-minded. In addition to the subtle fare served up by Willis, we should like to add a few prosaic turnovers of our own. Try to use your own car at all times. Don't be caught on a double date without your own transportation because of the obvious limitations that it opposes on your activities. We hardly need expand on this. Your skill or lack of it in handling a car will affect her. Give her a smooth ride, avoid unnecessary speed that might create anxiety or tension, and do a deft job of parking. If she finds you mechanically inept at the wheel, she may think your lack of coordination extends further. The sports car, while appealing to some girls, nevertheless has certain obvious disadvantages. Nylons are strained to the running point, and Taffeta crushed and wrinkled as she squeezes in or out of that fancy little white spider that you borrowed for the night to impress her. Most of these little buggies require lots of handling with conventional four speeds forward and constant shifting. So, as a result, the only thing you can take into your hands is her life. And don't forget, in the privacy of the average car, you can make lateral as well as forward progress. Whereas buggies such as the Sexual DV8, the High Dungeon, the Blue Funk are much in vogue at present, we feel that the sports car fad will wane when American know-how succeeds in the mass production of a cheap, uncomfortable little car. If, in spite of the disadvantages we have listed, your lady of the moment is incorrigibly addicted to these miniature nuisances, then we suggest you employ the following on this earthbound Jackie Cochran. The foreign car bit is a relatively new caper. Though you have neither a foreign car nor the means to buy one, take her with you while you haunt the showrooms of these diminutive imported dandies and make the idea of purchase seem imminent. 
as you admire the sleek lines of a British Pems number one, tell the salesman that you have a whale of a deal going on in Italian Cinzano, not to mention a lead on a custom-made waterfall franzier. Disdain the little and comparatively cheap NG, which is too common now, and is really nothing more than a motorcycle with its safety factors aroused. Next to Mink itself, the European sports car is the badge of inspired indolence among the girls, and as the Chinese say, she who rides a jaguar cannot dismount. Chapter 5. The Restaurant a girl may not sell herself for a mess of potage, but if it's cold vichyssoise in the right setting, she may become a hot prospect. Women regard the merit of the place where you dine as an index of your regard for her. The quality of the restaurant should diminish as an affair progresses. This can be accomplished subtly under the adventures in fine eating heading, if the man has his wits about him. Seldom should he make the mistake of asking the girl where she would like to go. In the average city, there are usually about three answers, all expensive. Sometimes she may suggest a modest restaurant, but this has sinister undertones of, oh, promise me. It's up to the man to present his choice for the evening with a certain enthusiasm, as if it were a planned surprise. A little epicurean chowder thrown in strategically can make a second-rate bistro bloom. One of your main concerns in the average restaurant can be the manipulation of the menu. Here it is a case of a la carte versus table d'hôte. Unless she actually wants only a salad or sandwich, the idea is to stress the table d'hôte side of the menu. Smack your lips as you praise the beef bourguignon, damn it, beef stew, as a dish that really tries the knowledge of both chef and epicure. Any fool can broil a steak. It's the sauce and preparation that marks the great dishes. However, if she outsmarts you and insists on a Kansas City tidbit with a sauce bernaise, 85 cents extra, Accept this move with smiling resignation. Order spaghetti for yourself and to hell with the wine. Console yourself that you left your coat in the car and who wears a hat? Head waiters present a special problem. To be respectfully addressed by one of them using your surname often impresses the girl. This applies only to the better restaurants and nightclubs. If you are not a habit of such, and we presume you are not. A small bribe when you make the reservation with your afternoon cocktail will accomplish this. Just be careful, moreover, to cover yourself at the crummy dives you usually frequent so that the maitre d' doesn't seem too chummy. Another effective bit is the prearranged request for the girl to produce her driver's license when being served a cocktail. This works better on women who are trying to forget their 30th birthday. Do not overplay this, because there is the danger that she may wonder why she is out with a balding bastard like you. CNN Blue Plate Special A man appreciates a well-dressed woman. The broad effect is for him, but the details and real finesse of her gown are for the prying female eyes. A woman may undress for a man, but she dresses for other women. 
Unfortunately, the best place for her to be seen by those who will envy or condemn is in the better restaurants. Much as the darlings love to go to 21 or La Pavonion, a pair of protrons, badly out of sorts, couldn't drag them in if their hair is not done nicely or if they are wearing the wrong clothes. Female vanity is the vulnerable spot that the world-weary bachelor goes to work on. If she doesn't look like a centaur in them, he will encourage her to wear slacks, perhaps telling her that, of all women, only she and Marlene look really well in trousers, trading on the fact that the finest restaurants frown on, if not forbid, women in slacks. A bachelor with a modicum of a plume can even go so far as to actually pull up in front of an elite eating establishment and then let her persuade him to go to a modest hamburger joint. Epicurean Cheat among our friends, Alfred B. is the most adept in the use of the Epicurean cheat, that is, pretending to deride the plush places by complaining of the food. He has been known to pr protest that Blanks is vastly overrated and that he would not be caught dead in a joint that passes off a slice of ripe olive as truffle on top of Eggs Benedict. He does this so vehemently that his righteous indignation infects the girl and she does not question when he takes her elsewhere. He also uses the disdainful, we have had that, haven't we, reference, apropos of certain deluxe food emporiums. This makes the young woman wish to rise to his blasé level by agreeing with him and consenting to a snack in a drive-in. Aqua fresca? Vino Puro. Wine has the particular virtue of being the one drink that can be taken with any kind of meal. It not only enhances the food, but preserves a glow so painstakingly acquired earlier in the evening. The effect of eating is dispelled by this heavenly nectar, and when followed by brandy in the congenial form of a stinger, it's like Gregory after Ruth. Somebody is apt to score. This remarkable stuff comes in all shades and colors, suitable to anyone's taste, in hot weather or cold. True, it does up the tab a notch, but count chickens, not pennies. The act of ordering wine lends grace to the meal. The flourish with which the sommelier presents the wine list for your consideration gives you a momentary importance in her eyes. If you can follow through with a little knowledgeable gup about vintage, bouquet, etc., she may be impressed. The very names Chateau Margaux, Conti, Vouvray, La Crème Christie, pronounced properly, of course, unlike myself, sound romantic and increase your stature, particularly with the neophyte. After examining the foreign products, suddenly discover an inexpensive California Napa Valley vintage, which exceeds them all. She may not know better. Your cosmopolitan air can be confirmed in her opinion if, for some reason or other, you should rummage in your wallet and encounter a French franc note or a few Italian lire and say, how did these get in here? Casually, Natch. These notes can easily be obtained at any stamp or coin shop, or who knows, you may have actually been to Europe. 
And in conclusion, don't forget that the old bubbly champagne is a wine, perhaps the most festive of all. The popping of the cork, the tickling sparkle, as well as its heady effect, has countless times made less tedious the journey to paradise for many a weary bachelor. Chapter 6. The Bachelor's Apartment The Cinder Court at Wimbledon Madison Square Garden The Bull Ring at Savoia All celebrated in sporting annals are hardly as exciting scenes of action as the average bachelor's apartment. But before elaborating on the apartment itself, we should like to present a few suggestions. Getting her to your apartment. At no time should you make your apartment seem like a snare, but rather give it the aura of forbidden fruit. She will scarcely be prepared for this attitude, and it frequently proves disarming. Reactivating certain ancient wheezes, which used to pay off before the sisterhood sharpened up to them, we now offer our current treatment of the following. The feeding the dog stall can still be of use, but needs a little refurbishing. Here we suggest indirection. Do not ask her to go with you while you feed Murgatroyd, but begin merely by saying you have forgotten to do it and shrug your shoulders plaintively. Since most women love or pretend to love dogs, she will usually volunteer to go with you. This is your cue to thank her effusively as though she were a rare sort. Upon arrival, do not risk giving Murgy the ration of dry dog meal which you usually feed him, but be sure to have on hand some favorite tidbits that will tempt, since you fed him earlier anyway. If he should disdain his, his snack, the girl may become hostile, and who wants that? The interior decorating pitch stirs the nesting instinct latent in all women, but once again, we say, make haste slowly. In apologetic manner, state that you would like to show her your apartment, but unfortunately, this is now out of the question. You are in the process of redoing it, and everything is a litter of fabric swatches, Italian leather samples, old Fortnoy prints, odd lamps, etc. Infer that it is all hopelessly confusing to you, and... Impressed by your incompetence, she will probably insist upon going there straight away. She will herself ask to see your bedroom. Once there, if you can engage her in spirited conversation on quilted bed covers, one thing may lead to another. In the neighborhood anyway. Sometime by genuine chance, you may have to pass your digs when you are out with a date. If the neighborhood is nice and the apartment building attractive, you might casually indicate it in passing, but make no allusion to stopping by for a drink. She will wonder what manner of a man you are, and a girl whose curiosity is aroused is already half committed. This method requires the utmost forbearance and is not for eager beavers. Don't attempt it if you have had a couple of drinks or you will find yourself inviting refusal and she will have gained strength from having bested you. A bluebeard bachelor with many honorable scars confides the following has served him well on occasion. 
appear on her doorstep with unshaven fizz after barbershop hours, of course, as you are about to depart together for dinner. Explain that you didn't want to keep her waiting, besides shaving twice a day as a bore, hereby implying great masculinity. At this point, not wishing to acknowledge that she, too, owns a razor, she may take you by the ear and lead you to your apartment. Hence, precedent is established. Next, please. Revolver gag. As a pretext for stopping at your apartment, say that you have forgotten your wallet. No argument here. And then tell her to sit in the car because you will be right out. Then, as though it were an afterthought, say that although the neighborhood looks nice enough, there have been several unmentionable crimes committed recently. Follow this by offering her an oversized derringer, which you extract from the glove compartment, spinning the chamber in a businesslike manner as you hand it to her before leaving. Soon you will hear the tapping of her little heels as she rushes to join you for protection. Inside Stuff the bachelor's apartment should be as much a well-oiled machine as a place to receive mail and store dirty laundry. It should be predominantly masculine, but not to the point of making a girl feel self-conscious or seem out of place. Leering moose heads, varnished musculunges, and tarnished trophies should be kept to the minimum so that she doesn't feel that she has violated the smoking room of an athletic club. If your furniture is of your own choosing, it might as well be modern. Period stuff may recall memories of her parents and home, imposing a morality through association, foreign to contemporary decor. Blatant overhead lighting is verboten. Low-key table lamps provide soft, flattering illumination and easy access to the switch. Wall-to-wall -wall carpeting eliminates cold floors. A thick pile not only lends a luxuriant air, but invites sprawling. It also improves the acoustics and may break your fall should you run afoul of a judo expert. A generously proportioned studio couch can be an end in and of itself or serve admirably as a bullpen for a few warm-up pitches. Place near the couch an extra-large coffee table charged with such items as cigarettes, ashtrays, Kleenex, etc. will help you maintain progress, saving you the interruption of fetching and carrying while she collects her wits in solitude. Couches, chairs, hassocks should all be low, hinting at the horizontal, but we demur at the isolated comfort of the unassailable contour chair, an outsized chastity belt if we ever saw one. Feminine appointments and paraphernalia should lurk, conveniently but serotypously, in the drawers of the powder room if you have such. A bar is convenient for dispensing a steady flow of liquor. There is less tendency for her to say, never mind, it's getting late, if you don't have to knock the neighbors up to borrow ice cubes. A well-stocked bar, which anticipates her taste in drinks rather than have her make do with something she really doesn't care for, can hasten the course of events. False Front Phineas R., one of those perennial juvenile-looking fellows, had a taste for young fry who have barely reached the legal age of delinquency. He lulled their inhibitions with the unique appearance of his bar. 
with its peppermint candy-striped wallpaper and cute wire-backed chairs painted white with tables to match. The effect was of an innocent, old-fashioned ice cream parlor. He had even placed containers with straws and paper napkins at each table and had thought to install a magazine rack along one wall. The drinks that he featured were lethal confections served in flare-top soda glasses to be sipped with straws. The result was that these sweet young things were disarmed by such nostalgic fripperies. Other impediments that do much to make a guest wish to come and linger are a fireplace, a phonograph, sea serenade, a cooling system for the hot spells, and a television set with remote control. Television is better used as an inducement to come to the apartment than as a reason to remain. Avoid the longer programs and constantly belittle the entertainment. Subtle dexterity and then manipulating the remote control can give the effect of a faulty tube or mechanical failure. Watching fights is good. They are brief and seem to stimulate some girls. A swimming pool and a tennis court would imply an estate rather than an apartment, but you can dream, can't you? Rain on the Roof Alex B., sometimes known as the Scourge of Beverly Hills, has one additional refinement, which he filched from the celebrated Beachcomber restaurant, and that is an artificial rain system that drips heavily and audibly into the planter that girts his whole house. And many a young chick has put up for the night because he hospitably offered her shelter from the elements. Eat snack. A well-stocked larder frequently pays off. Girls, more than men, get sudden hunger pangs. For the famished doll who becomes ravenous after restaurant hours can be easily induced to enjoy a late snack at your place, especially if you know her gastronomical weaknesses and idly mention one of them in appetite-arousing terms. For instance, to say, darling, I could go for some scrambled eggs dressed with sour cream and beluga caviar. How about you? Might be all that would be necessary to get some otherwise recalcitrant biddy on home ground. We offer the above menu because we think there is something compromisingly like breakfast and sharing eggs together. Yet the added touch of caviar gives a festive air. But bear in mind, a kitchen is a bright, wholesome place, conducive to downright friendliness rather than passion, so do not eat there. Retire to the dim lights with a bottle of chilled wine to sustain mood and momentum. Keep such engrossing snares as chess sets, scrabble boards, and dark games out of sight, for time flies by so harmlessly when these are readily available. You, bon vivants, who wish to indulge your fancy a little, get a hold of a silent valet and hang your pants and dinner jacket on it, as well as a shirt and black tie. Nothing suggests the man about town more readily than a minor touch like this. It makes you apparently in demand and hints at gaiety in the offing. The forbidden room fob-off is a dandy. If your apartment is commodious and you are not too concerned about money, follow the example of Gregory B. and install a completely equipped boudoir, cosmetics, perfume, comb and brush set, dressing table, and all. 
it must be kept immaculate and appear uninhabited. You will say it is reserved for your sleepy time girl, and that its chaste character has never been violated. This silent challenge may provoke wonder and accomplish what hours of persuasion failed to do. The bed linen must at all times be fresh and unwrinkled, and for the last exquisite touch, you could have the pillow and sheets monogrammed with question marks on either side of your last initial. Granted, this indicates matrimonial intentions, but a simple shrug of your shoulders when the girl looks at you quizzically can hardly be regarded as a firm offer. Yes, keep the wastebaskets clean. One rouge-smeared piece of Kleenex and the whole elaborate structure collapses. To have such a room is one thing, but to present it properly like the true master Gregory B. is even more important. During the let-me-show-you-the-rest-of-my-apartment swindle, Gregory gave the tour a haunting bluebeard appeal by pausing in front of the door of the room described above, considering the girl meditatively a moment, then slowly extracting a key from his pocket. He tentatively opened the door with faint trace of reluctance. A less elaborate but more rewarding floor plan is that of George S., the laziest man we know. Thinking only of his own comfort, he innocently stumbled upon something good. Being naturally indolent and antisocial as far as large gatherings were concerned, he had bunched all comforts, conveniences, and attractions in his large sleeping quarters. His unheated living room and dinette area were quite bare and austere, and what chairs he had were more conducive to good posture than ease. The only bath had to be reached through his bedroom, so when a girl went to wash her hands, she was instantly struck with the contrast. On her return, she invariably would say, why don't we sit in there by that nice fire? Indicating the spider's nest. Sighing and knocking out his pipe, George would follow her like a patient St. Bernard and flop on the king-size bed, which, by no accident, faced a built-in television at its foot. In no time at all, and without invitation, she would kick off her eye millers, join him to watch her favorite program, and there they were, and there you are. Clothes and the Man We see that, up until now, we have said nothing of the bachelor's personal appearance or attire. Since his wardrobe is kept in his apartment, we think this as good a place as any to squeeze in a few remarks about what may be a touchy subject. Most every man is convinced that his taste in clothes within his budget is above criticism. This blind belief accounts for the appalling welter of garments, socks, ties, etc. that are offered for sale by the unconscionable manufacturers and haberdashers. No two, no two humans are exactly alike, and the endless variety of formations and malformations inherited or acquired is impressive. There are men who, emerging from the shower to the locker room, look like something polished off by Phidias on a good day. Yet, when these attic gods pile into their clothes, they have a bumpkin look compared to some 
ratchetic, spindly cadaver who towels off, steps into a few yards of gabardine, and suddenly becomes as debonair as Fred Astaire. The natty chap, who can wear almost anything, is the despair of his confrerie, who dare not bandage his Adam's apple with a bow tie, who looks like a missionary in Hamburg or Panama, and is obviously miscast in a patterned sport shirt. There is just no use in bucking against it. When a fellow whom nature has designated as a conservative ventures forth in a tattersall vest, he is as ridiculous and pitiful as a pimply-faced adolescent whose voice splits as he nonchalantly asks, How's tricks, baby? to some little dreamboat. A good tailor is the silent accomplice of the bachelor, whether he has the teardrop figure of the endomorph or the V-shaped physique of Cary Grant. Conspire with this man of the needle. His is the art of concealment. He disguises or eliminates all your natural failings. Lordosis, knock knees, unequal legs, uneven shoulders, paunches, and protrusions in general. Don't mar the bumpless silhouette he gives you by bulging the pockets with junk. Carry a thin cigarette case and a flat wallet. No problem. Or, still better, that small diner's club book and be a millionaire for a month. A studied imperfection in an otherwise faultless ensemble can sometimes induce the laying on of hands by the kind of girl who can't resist straightening a crooked picture. A tie slightly askew, a handkerchief spilling out, or a single dangling forelock may be all that's necessary for her to make the gesture of affectionate familiarity from which she cannot easily retreat. Many a wise wolf has used this cocker spaniel approach profitably. Allures, it is not for you to dazzle but conform. You can let yourself go a little in the sportswear department, but that's about it. Unless you have reason for confidence, don't take her to the beach because you may prove a disappointment to each other and discover a mutual distaste for the task that lies before you. Heaven forbid that a man of your age get mixed up with some little broad of the blue jean set. But if so, use the old psychology. If you can't beat him, join him. Put on the t-shirt and leather jacket uniform of this who have all dressed precisely alike in order to prove their individuality, but with this sneaky difference. Bathe regularly, use deodorant, and change the t-shirt frequently. The object of your desire may tire of the animal magnetism of your gamey rivals as she picks up your cologne spore. Now, we're not going to waste your time or ours with fashion hints that can easily be called from a frayed copy of Esquire while you wait for a haircut. In general, wear clothes that fit, socks that match, shoes that glisten, and when in doubt, a white shirt. Your overall color may be that of a mouse, but at least be sleek. The main purpose of the male costume is to provide a shifting neutral background for those scintillating ingenues from 18 to 80, so submit. The case history we now present points up the fact that clothes do make the man.
Recently, Clyde S. called us in desperate straits. He had been pursuing a car hop of Good's family for several months without auspicious success. Lately, he had observed something vague and withdrawn about her, even when he was in his best form. We hesitated to call this attitude of hers by its right name, i.e. indifference, because Clyde was an old client and we wanted to place him. We knew that loss of confidence was far worse for him than merely being perplexed. We had reviewed his case in our files before our conference with him in person. We decided to give him our most potent treatment, the C&N Pygmalion Number 1, which amounts to a personal sum clearance program, physical as well as mental. It is our opinion that Clyde, dressed like a rather mild-mannered assassin, perhaps because of his spectacles, octagonal, rimless, his hair was overlong, his color pallid, and his choice in ties uproarious. By Friday night, we had him in a Brooks Brothers minor executive worsted with double fence, button-down shirt, red vest, narrow black tie with small knot, black tassel loafers, and all of this surmounted by a crew cut. His spectacles were now wide tortoise shell with dark lenses. His mustache was gone. In fact, Everything was altered except his fingerprints. We even applied our instant suntan oil to give him that Palm Springs look. This outward transformation was carried to the interior by making him commit to memory Nudnik's opening. And I should note that we are not at liberty to disclose the nature of Nudnik's opening in print. Satisfied that he was letter perfect, we sent him off, chin up. The next afternoon, Clyde came by for our critique. As he came in the door, we could see that he was a changed man. Hi, fellas, he said, pouring himself three fingers of our best without waiting to be asked. How did it go, we asked. I drink to your shining combined genius, he said, raising his glass. Things couldn't have been better. I actually don't know what happened, but something worked. Clyde was more than effusive in his gratitude. We were happy for him and told him that we were closing his files with a cum laude sticker. Great, he said. This is really my day. Say, I almost forgot to tell you that I was promoted to general sales manager with a big raise and a fat expense account. When did this happen, we asked. Yesterday. It slipped my mind. I was so concerned about Olivia. You told her? Now that you mention it, I believe I did. We were driving to her apartment, as I remember. Hmm, we both remarked. Unequal yoke fellows. A roommate is a rival and a nuisance, a wolf in your clothing. The genuine nimrods of the bachelor set love alone and like it. Only economic necessity can be admitted as sufficient reason for an otherwise free spirit to submit to the indignity of having a yoke fellow. Seldom can an equitable arrangement be worked out for sharing the premises for romantic purposes. If two people live together, one always dominates, or learns to, through browbeating, bribery, or blackmail. 
When we think of the long, dreary nights spent in late shows, deserted bars, all-night drugstores, or in just plain trudging up and down, waiting for an all-clear, while some usurper, we could mention by name, is high-handily pretending that what is ours is his, we could, well, never mind. Even if you should be on the inside looking out, the situation still wants perfection. For instance, if your latest little acquisition knows you share your apartment, she will tighten up her feathers, expecting momentarily, in spite of your insurances to the contrary, the boisterous intrusion of your brassing, leery bunkie. The best way to allay her doubts in this regard is to begin the rendezvous by establishing his absence, apologetically but firmly. Some bald-faced lie to the effect that you regret she won't be able to meet the dear fellow because he's off for the weekend should suffice. But don't forget to put the chain lock on the door. As a hedge against his untimely return, you can show her a sealed collect telegram previously hidden near the door, which will explain the sudden pounding at your pallings and account for your mumbled words as you pass currency out into the darkness to stall him off. If he's not too drunk, she may think nothing amiss. Signal systems have some merit if they are adopted in good faith. The dubious raising and lowering of blinds or switching on or off of lights give a cloak and dagger uh, air which is thrilling only to an iron-nerved Matahari. The best reply to this corny problem we can recall is the practice by two former seamen who have learned the honor signals through years of training. When the apartment was in use, the incumbent ran up to the pennant, which indicated owner aboard while his shipmate stood the watch. When a liaison is well established, the very presence of your roommate may concern her no longer. She may even propel him to the door, clapping his beret on his head and thrusting him out into the rain as the spirit moves her. On the other hand, her natural propriety feelings mount. She may, one enchanted evening, do the same to you and then die hard. You will realize that sharecropping is for the boyds. And speaking of boyds, let's spread our wings for a second and take a real quick break. Looks like we made it. We are back and we are more than halfway through with our handbook and things are really starting to heat up. I hope you all have been taking notes and of course enjoying yourself as we head deep into chapter seven, Serenade. Gone is the ukulele, and with it the advantage of the slightly talented over the tone deaf. The phonograph is a great equalizer and has made music a commodity rather than an art, so that today the light-footed layman clutching an album of records stands on equal terms with his more gifted bachelor brother. This situation is in line with the modern tendency for all recreation to become spectator sports, save one. Phonograph records can supplant candy and flowers and are as disarming as drink. 
If she has no record player, there is no reason to feel frustrated. Simply take her by her hot little hand and lead her to your apartment. The idea is to get from Orpheus to Morpheus with as much dispatch as politeness will allow. A phonograph is an indispensable item in the properly furnished bachelor home. The random mixture of ballad and bop that emanates from the radio is unreliable and frequently disconcerting for the business at hand. First of all, get a good record changer. The gravel-like sound of the tone arm that has bounced out of the groove and is playing a felt serenade has often proven a fatal interruption to a bachelor's progress. Some moments are never to be retrieved. The advent of the long-playing record proves a real boon here, reducing the chances of this sort of thing occurring to one in five over the conventional waxes. Mood music is an almost necessary adjunct to romance. There is, however, the constant danger of becoming engrossed in the music itself. Beware of listening wholeheartedly. Rather, keep up a pattern germane to your real purpose. Should she happen to be a jive hound, you may find the old Capehart no friend but a rival. So before her next visit, abolish her favorites and get the music for dreaming department. Dancing with the target for the night in the privacy of your own apartment may serve as an excuse to hold her close, but you can lose her this way as well, especially if you are a good dancer. Dancing, according to Havelock Ellis, is a substitute for you-know-what, and who wants oleo when he can have butter? Some girls truly love to dance, so if her pleasure seems too complete here, pull up lame and get back to that couch. Disc Jockey, we should like to brighten up proceedings by introducing one. Peter P. Pete is a specialist in high fidelity, you should forgive the expression, to accomplish low purposes and has developed this particular operation to trapdoor perfection. The following sets forth his general M.O. Peter soon fixes on the girl's natural taste in music and wastes no time in attempting to convert her to his own. For if it's Montavani or Casalana she wants instead of Palestrina, then so be it. Feeding her the above confections like a kidnapper, his next move is the R song wheeze. He is of the opinion that here it is best to let her appear to choose it in a way that she would select a card, just any card, from a prestidigitator. The song being chosen, Pete feels that he now has a climax to build toward in his evening of music. Almost invariably, the song will be of a ballad variety, although we know a cozy pair of sport fans that swoon every time they hear How Are You Fixed for Blades commercial. But to return to Peter, Acknowledging the convenience of the long-playing records, he, nevertheless, is proudest of having made the team, so to speak, on numerous occasions by means of a carefully selected stack of standard 78s. His pride is comparable to the huntsman who gets his deer with a bow and arrow. 
Of course, needless to say, he had checked his automatic changer with the casual ease of a Dutchman about to split the Kohenor diamond. To accomplish his ends with one well-chosen pile is to bring off quite a parlay, but Pete has admitted coming a cropper, recalling wryly the time that lead kindly light showed up on the flip side of love for sale. The girl in this case being a good Presbyterian. Pete roughly classified music into two categories. Number one, prelude, and number payoff stuff. The character of the former is generally romantic and that of the latter rhythmic. It is here that our write-in service may prove invaluable. Pete is like a bit of a philosopher as well as a disc jockey and we'd like to give you a slice of his thinking. Since the first woman presented a gadget-happy male whose best effort to date was a crude flint arrowhead with a bouncing baby boy and said, now let's see you top that. She has regarded herself as the undefeated champion inventor of all time and hasn't been seriously impressed with his tinkering from that day forward. This attitude, says Pete, applies to anything with wheels or wires, so don't expect her to show the slightest genuine interest in the workings of your hi-fi system. If you wish to spend a truly coaxial evening with her, lay off the input talk and just the chatter about tweeters and sound reflexes, but just plop on her favorite tune, turn the volume down, and treat your whole damn operation as if it were a 1932 orthophonic. It may seem like going to buy groceries with a 4.5 Ferrari, but who cares? First things first. Modest operandi. Some of the most appealing melodies ever written are to be found in the repertoire of opera. The playing of a complete version of an opera is inadvisable, however, because interspersed between the melodic portions are the recitatives. There are long passes of conversation, half sung, half spoken, for the purpose of furthering the plot and keeping tab on the number of corpses. Opera being a notoriously internecine affair with a mortality rate greater than a 4th of July weekend. The sudden intrusion of voices so vivid in modern reproduction can be quite startling at the wrong moment, especially if it happens to be an irate basso demanding vengeance. Listen. If you must, the exquisite carterwalling as expressed from the compressed embonpoint of assorted sopranos, tenors, etc. But for land's sake, don't let her read the libretto. One after another, these librettos are nothing but the stories of betrayed womanhood, Faust, Don Juan, etc. So, for your own pains, you may fetch up with a fat lip as she squares things for Madame Butterfly after all these many years. Hi guys, it's me, Margot. So after recording the whole book, this episode would have clocked in at around three hours. So I have broken it up into two episodes because sometimes I am a merciful little creature. 
So stick around. Part two will be right up, and you do not want to miss it. Trust me. As we all know, my research has proven to be inscrutable so far. <laughs> no, but really, you don't want to miss it.